Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew somewhere around you that says the story on top of it, and it'll be page 702 in that Bible. Happy New Year again. I hope you uh, had a great end to uh, 2017 and are excited about what God has for you in 2018. <laughs> I was excited. Um, last Sunday we had Derek Donez brought the word. Everybody give it up for Derek. <laughs> Derek did a great job bringing the word. I, you need to know that Derek's 2017 ended better than yours. And here's what I mean. Not only did he get to preach last Sunday morning and he did a great job, but last Sunday night Derek got engaged. <laughs> To Miss Ashley Future, Ashley Donez. All right, so it's going to be a little while. It's going to be in 2019, uh, and so but I'm super excited for them. Uh, Derek is our pastoral ministry intern here. Be praying for him, not only as he's engaged, but this Wednesday night, he'll be starting uh, a Spanish ministry on Wednesday nights, and so uh, Redemption Espanol, please be praying for that for him and for Ashley. Um, she's a crazy woman to get married to a man in ministry. Amen? All right. My wife gives the loudest amen on that. I hope that as we get into 2018, though, you are excited to see what God has for you. Um, listen, I, I want to I simplify it this morning. Sometimes I have a tendency, because I'm a theology need, I'm a nerd. I'm a, I, was, I was mixing nerd and geek. Uh, I'm, I'm a theology nerd and, and geek, and I, I mean, I love to, to parse the, the Greek and get deep and figure out exactly what's going on, and, um, but I was convicted even this, this week as I was preparing for this message, and I got to go to the Passion Conference in Atlanta for a few days with some of our, our young men and, and, and really hear from a lot of great speakers and some great music, and, and so starting off this year, there really is a simplicity to what we're going to talk about. The title of our message is Love God. Everybody say, love God. That's kind of it. That's kind of it. That's what is really the whole thing here. Um, and, and so our, our sentence, our sermon in a sentence today is to, you'll see at the top of your bulletin, to love God with everything in you is both the greatest calling and greatest pleasure in the life of a disciple. That's, that's the message for today. If you need to tune out or take a nap, if you'll just actually hear that and apply it, then that's really kind of what I'm going to communicate to you today. And, and, and here's the deal. We're gonna, you'll, you'll notice a pattern if you've been here for a while. The first Sunday of every year, we, we usually go to a passage about this. Um, because if we're going to center our year on any idea, then, then there's a really good clue in the Bible as to what we should center it on. There, there's a moment, a couple of moments, at least there's, it's recorded in Mark, it's recorded in Matthew, where, where, where someone comes to Jesus and says, Hey, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And he takes us back to what he calls the Shema. Everybody say Shema. Meaning listen here, right? Listen with, with intent, actively listen. The difference between hearing and listening. We asked that in our Bible study group this morning. And one answer real quick was uh, between 6 and 12 years old. It seems like you only have the ability to hear but not listen. And uh, someone said, ask any wife. And they can tell you the difference from their husbands between listening and hearing to actively receive the message, Shema. And so our, our message this morning really is simple, but 
But you can't just hear the words. You can't just amen it. You can't just nod your head to it and take some notes. My prayer for us as a church, and I'm going to ask you to join me in that prayer, is that we would live this out. We would live out this truth both individually and as a church as a whole. And so as we look at this, uh, stand with me as we read God's word. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that this simple but profound truth would rock us to the core this morning. Lord, that it would really even become our core, our foundation, our identity, that this would become our greatest pursuit in life, is to love you. Lord, I, I need your help this morning. I need you to speak through me. It won't be my words that make a difference today. It'll be your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the context of Mark chapter 12, really kind of the end of chapter 11, And through chapter 12, it's a series of uh, discussions with Jesus from religious leaders. You have uh, the Sanhedrin approaches him at the end of chapter 11, going some into chapter 12. And then the Pharisees and the Herodians and then the Sadducees. And then in our passage today, uh, a scribe. Now, a scribe, their job was to take uh, the Old Testament, the Word of God, and to handwrite it. Um, over and over and over and over again. But not only that, but to become an expert on, on the law and interpreting the law and, and, and what it means. And see, uh, this, is a, this is a normal question and discussion because if you look throughout Jewish history, you'll see kind of two contradicting, uh, almost seemingly contradicting thoughts on the law that we do the same thing as well, right? So in, in, in one side of it, you'll see people uh, make the law as complex as they can possibly make it. And so they'll take the law that's in the Old Testament and they'll add to it all these extra provisions to help you meet the law, right? And so all of a sudden you go from the, the 300 to 600 commandments that you can count in the Old Testament and then we add all these extra provisions and ways to make sure that we stay within it. And we end up with thousands of, of things that we have to pay attention to. And we end up so far away from the original intent. As a matter of fact, there was a time in, in Orthodox uh, Judaism where because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, if your house caught on fire, your, your best option, the loophole that came with you for you was to give away all your stuff to your neighbors. Because then you were not working, you were just giving stuff away. But if they were good neighbors, they would give it back to you once you had a house again or had a place to put it. 
again. And so we start to create all these. And listen, we do that too. We, we get real complex with what it means to follow Jesus. We love to argue and, and add complexities to what it is. But then there's also this idea in Judaism of trying to simplify the law of God as much as possible, even to one sentence. There's a rabbi named Hillel, and he was asked by someone, if, I'll convert if you can tell me the law of God while balancing on one foot. And so the rabbi Hillel stood on one foot, and he said, whatever you hate, I'm paraphrasing, this is Jimbo paraphrase of Hillel, whatever you hate that others do to you, don't, don't do it to them. It's kind of his own version of the golden rule. And so there's this desire to to kind of sometimes bring complexity to the law, and then there's a desire sometimes to simplify the law. And so Jesus has been in these discussions with all these religious leaders all through the end of chapter 11, all through chapter 12, coming up to this one point, the scribe who's supposed to be an expert on the law comes to Jesus with this question. So what's the greatest of them? And it really shouldn't be surprising what Jesus' answer is to this. See, you may... I think there's also this tendency to say, for, for some of you type A people, uh, when I take a personality profile, if there is a rule-following aspect, like somebody, some personality that loves to follow all the rules, uh, out of a scale of 1 to 100, mine's always somewhere around a 4. I don't understand this compulsion to always follow the rules, and it's just not in how God has wired me and his, through his sanctification and my wonderful wife, I have become much better at following rules. And so, if you're one of those people that would score 100 on that, there's part of Jewish law that would frustrate you because you want all of it to matter equally. But see, even Jesus in a discussion somewhere else talks about how it doesn't all matter equally. See, there were two laws that would sometimes come, and the pretty, pretty big, important laws that would come into contradiction or com- competition with each other. See, we are supposed to not work on the Sabbath, right? We're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. Jesus got in trouble a little bit on that, that one, right? And so even Jesus may bother you, rule followers, on that part. But whenever he did one time, he healed a guy, and they kind of came at him about it. He told him, he said, you do the same thing. And he said, the law tells us that on the eighth day after a son is born, he is to be circumcised. He goes, what do you guys do on the eighth day when the eighth day falls on a Sabbath? Right. Also, now we have two competing different laws. See, eight days after a boy is born, he has to be circumcised on that eighth day. That's the importance. When Paul brags about his Judaism, Paul at some point brags that he's more Jewish than you are. He tells you that on the eighth day he was circumcised, that he followed, his parents followed that law, that very important Jewish law. And so Jesus goes, but what do you do when that eighth day falls on the Sabbath? You have to pick. I mean, you have, a, you have to, at that point, pick. It, are we going to follow the Sabbath, or are we going to follow the eighth-day rule? And usually they would follow the eighth-day rule, and Jesus' argument against them for arguing against him for healing someone was that I can heal the whole body. You, you, you do this one little bitty thing, and I heal the whole body, and you, you complain. Do you not remember why the Sabbath was made? It wasn't made to be a law to, to, to hit you with. It was made for you because you need rest, because you need to stop and remember that you're not in control. You need to stop and realize you can't do it all, all the time. That's not how God designed you to work. Right? And so we see this competition law. So there's always this idea that some laws are more important than other laws. And so the scribe asking, so what's the most important? 
And what Jesus responds with is something that they recite twice a day, every morning, every evening, as, they're starting to, as they realize death is near for them, they would recite this, the Shema that we've been saying. They call it the Shema because that first word in Hebrew is Shema. Hear, O Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So our first point today is you should love God with all your. And then we're going to look at what he says. All your. There's this all-encompassing. If you were in Bible study groups this morning studying out of Deuteronomy, you saw that not only is it all your and then the list of things, but it was something that you teach when you're lying down, when you're standing up, when you're going about your day, when you're going to bed, when you sit down to eat, put it on your doorpost, you put it on your forehead, you put it everywhere. This becomes kind of central to your life. And, and so first thing he says is that it's to all your heart. What you need to understand about loving God, and I think this is this was a concept that was brought up at the Passion Conference this week, and it's a simple yet profound concept that our love and our worship is pointed at a person. Everybody say a person. Here's, here's why you got to catch that. Right? Sometimes when we talk about worshiping God or loving God, we talk about the things that He's done for us. And I love that He saved me, I love that I woke up today. I love that he's blessed me with at least decent health. I love that he's, you know, i got a roof over my head. Or we can list all these different ways that God has blessed us. And we start to talk about those things that we love. And, and what we need to not miss is that what we've been called to is to love a person. God. See, when we just love his gifts, that's actually idolatry. When we just love his gifts, then what are we going to do? Like Job is challenged in the book of Job, what are we going to do when all those things aren't there? What do we do when, when the world's not going the way we want it to? When things aren't, when our health isn't good, when our finances aren't good, when we don't have a roof over our head, when things don't make sense, can you still love and worship God? Or were you loving and worshiping his gifts the whole time? Because you'll know in that moment which one it was that you loved. And that love is directed at a person. We also need to understand that love is based in desire and delight. This is, this is not just a, a, a nod, a philosophical uh, affiliation. This is not just an uh, appreciation and thanks. This is desire and delight. Like, I want more of God in my life and I delight in His presence in my life. And I think we've got to evaluate ourselves and see, is that what we're actually doing? Are we actually delighting in God? Like, are we finding pleasure? Is God our treasure? Is he the thing we pursue more than anything else? Or is he a side thought that we like to add to our lives every once in a while? I want to tell you that This calling to make him the most important in your life is not only the greatest calling that God gives you, but it'll be your greatest pleasure. It'll be your greatest pleasure if you will pursue him more than anything else. If you'll love him, if you'll delight in the Lord, actually enjoy him as a person, not just his gifts. For some of you, I may feel like a very foreign concept. Some of you, if you were honest enough, you would go, I don't know what it is to delight in God as a person. I know 
that I don't want to go to hell. I know that God's the only way that I don't do that. I, I know that he has some ways that I'm supposed to behave and, and some ways that I'm supposed to live. And, and I want to live by those because I want to please him and keep him from being angry at me. Or I know that maybe you are fully aware of all your screw-ups in life and you feel just overwhelming shame because you think, man, if everybody really knew the, the things that I've done, the, the things that I think, the temptations that I struggle with, and you, you have this shame that you just can't get rid of, and so your relationship with God is maybe more of like, I don't know, I just hope that, I hope that you can overcome my badness. Like, I realize you're my only hope. And listen, I want to tell you, all those things are true. But I want to, I want to challenge you as much, I, I want to implore you. I, want, I mean, I, I don't even know of a word adequate enough to, I'm begging you as your pastor, don't let your relationship with God end there. Those things are true. There's no better place to take your shame. There's no better person to guide your life. There is no other way to get to heaven. There is no other way to get approval. There is no other way to have your sins washed and cleansed. But I want to tell you, not only are those things true, but the greatest pleasure in your life, if you'll let it be, will be the presence of God and your love for Him because of His love for you. With your heart, with your heart, like with, with all your preferences. See, the heart is a, a, an organ that doesn't just pump blood into our bodies. It's this idea in the Hebrew of, of our very being, of, of all of our preferences and desires. What are, what are your preferences? Is, is God a preference for you? Listen, I... I have no intention of making anyone feel guilty today. What I really want to do is elevate the presence of God in your life and let you see that this, this really is the greatest pursuit. Look, have whatever resolutions you want to have this year. Have them, go for them, chase them. There is no greater pursuit in life than the presence of God. Worshiping Him, loving Him, Literally everything else comes second or third or fourth. Your marriage, your kids, your finances, your bills, your health, all those things fall in after loving God. At the Passion Conference, I'd already planned on preaching this, and John Piper, one of my favorite preachers, got up. And unsurprisingly, preached a similar message. And I remember just taking notes thinking, I'm just going to say everything he says. I decided not to do that, but I, I do have to quote him at least once. He said, The great commandment is a calling to be supremely satisfied in what is supremely satisfying. The great commandment is a calling to be supremely satisfied in what is supremely satisfying. In other words... God is giving you a commandment, a direction, an order, an imperative, something you need to follow. 
but not just out of duty. If you're, if you're wise enough to see it, if the Holy Spirit could open it up in your heart, and my prayer this morning is that, Holy Spirit, that you would open this and awaken this in our hearts, that we would understand that it's not just a commandment. It really is an opportunity to be supremely satisfied in life. That regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our struggles, regardless of our shortcomings, regardless of our shame, regardless of our addictions, regardless of all the things that we love in this world, we would be supremely satisfied in you. And listen, here's where we got to make the disconnect or the connection. We, when God says, be supremely satisfied in me, he doesn't mean, man, you got to ignore all these pleasures of the world and just settle for loving me. Like you got to sacrifice. It is not a sacrifice at all. You got to you got to catch this. That being satisfied in God is nowhere near a sacrifice. It is the most satisfying thing created. The opportunity to worship. Well, that sounds just like something a preacher would say. I I struggle with this reality. I do. I know it. I, mean, I know it very well mentally. I know it theologically. I could take you to 150 verses that will point to that truth. I, I could take you to books that point to that truth that I've read. I could take you to sermons I've preached that point to that truth. But in, in, if we're all being honest here, which is my preference, right, then, then tomorrow, this afternoon, when we watch the Jags game, on Tuesday when we're at work, whatever is going on in our week, we struggle to find our satisfaction here, don't we? There's, there's just something in us that gets so distracted and so discouraged. So this is a fight. This is a fight. You gotta fight it. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta know it enough here that it starts to transfer to your heart that you'll fight for it. This doesn't just happen by going to church. This doesn't just happen by opening your Bible and reading the Bible for five minutes. I mean, this happens by being, I mean, obsessive, crazy about it, right? I mean, and you go, I don't really want to be obsessive. I don't want to be a Jesus freak. If you look at the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 that we studied this morning, it's like the very definition of obsessed. This should be what you have on your mind and what you teach when you lie down, when you, go to, when you get up, when you eat, when you sleep, when you walk, when you're going places. It needs to be on your doorpost. It needs to be on your forehead. I don't know if you can get more obsessed than just attaching something to your forehead. Yeah, we've got to be obsessed. This has got to be it. This is the pursuit of life. Pastor, you don't know how busy my week is. You don't know how busy. When I get up, I got to be at work early, early in the morning, and I don't get home till just in time for dinner, and I've got just a little bit of moment. Look, that's great. I'm not saying don't do those things. I'm just saying, what are you sacrificing? What choice are you making here? I can't change your job. I can't change your hours, but I'm telling you, there is no greater pursuit and productivity makes a horrible God. It's one I love to worship, if I'm being honest. I love having a productive day. I love coming to the end of my day and thinking, man, I got a lot accomplished today. It makes me feel important. But it's those times when I stop. I cease striving, be still. And I think about, listen, not his gifts. Not not the things he's blessed me with. But just God. 
when I think about the fact that we don't even fully understand how big the universe is, that we have an entire organization called NASA studies outer space and galaxies and and really what we've discovered is minimal. We really don't even grasp our own our own galaxy, just this one, just the Milky Way. That God knows the names of every single one of those stars. He created them all. And he also knows how many hairs are on your head. And he knows all your thoughts. And he doesn't just know you. He loves you. With all your heart, with all your soul. When I was studying this, I was actually surprised. I recommend, I was studying it and then I went and looked. Uh, Bible Project uh, website I've recommended to you a lot of times. Bibleproject.com has some great videos. They actually have a whole video series on the Shema. Uh, it's really good. And they've got the one on soul uh, confirmed what I started reading. I started studying and I thought, okay, maybe I'm misunderstanding this. I need to go deeper and, 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 I, and I, I'm a visual, so I got some help from Bible Project. The word nefesh in, in Hebrew really literally translates throat. See, see, we think we think soul like this mystical, like metaphysical kind of thing. That's not soul is is the living, active body of a human being. This is this is who we are and what we do. Right. So you're eight, ten, twelve hours at work tomorrow is your nefesh, your soul at work. And Jesus says, quoting Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your soul. With everything you do, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now this one was not in the Deuteronomy 6 passage. Jesus adds the word mind here. Because in the original Hebrew thought, Head and heart really are attached ideas. Uh, but he's taken you, I, I think, and this is the Jimbo translation, Jimbo interpretation, so I could be wrong. It's happened once or twice before. Because of the context of what's going on in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is constantly in these discussions and, and debates with religious leaders, uh, they're, they're loving the law with their mind, but maybe not loving God. You get what I'm saying? Like they spend all their time studying, uh, but they're not catching the God who wrote the law in the midst of it. I think Jesus is intentionally bringing the word mind in here to a guy who literally, this is what he does for a living, is study and write the law all day long, every day, except for the Sabbath. I really think Jesus is intentionally bringing mind into here, out of heart, although they are connected, to say, listen, and here's what I'm telling you. Look, I, I, I promise you, you can study the Word of God every day and it not bring you any more affection for God. And just bring you knowledge. I told you before, when I went to seminary, my very first ministry mentors were uh, Christian bikers. And there's two different kinds of Christian bikers. There's like dentists and lawyers that can afford motorcycles, and so they buy them. And then there's guys that like used to be in motorcycle gangs and get saved, right? Two different kinds of Christian motorcycle guys, right? Mine were the guys who used to be in motorcycle gangs and got saved, all tatted up, long hair, a little rough, sometimes still use words they shouldn't. 
And, and I was going to do some prison ministry with them in Louisiana and telling them, hey, man, I'm going to seminary. We're moving to New Orleans, and I'm going to go to seminary. And I'll never forget one of them, the most tatted up, most intimidating-looking one. Uh, he looked at me. He goes, man, I really hope when you come out of there you still love Jesus. I said, what? Of course I will. That's all I'm going to do is study about Jesus all day, every day. I was so naive. And he said, man, I've seen so many people come out of seminary and just have a lot more knowledge but no more love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. With all your strength. What what has God given you the ability to do? What, What are your strengths? Do you use them for your own advancement? Or do you pursue a way to glorify God with it? Pastor, I'm just trying to pay the bills. I get that. You know what Jesus said about paying the bills? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Talked about worrying about things, worrying about having a roof over your head, worrying about having food on the table. You know what he said? He said, Matthew 6, 33, pursue first, first, first. Everybody say first. He said, pursue first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the rest of this will be added unto you. Right? What if, what if we were bold, listen to me, what if we were bold enough and crazy enough to evaluate how God has given us strengths and say, although this may risk my very livelihood, I'm willing to use this more for the kingdom of God than I am my own advancement. It's easy for you to say this is what you do for a living. It's not what I've always done for a living. I'm going to tell you I made way better money in a kitchen. And to be honest, stressful. Because when I left work, I left work. No one called me in the middle of the night. No one got mad at me for the way I said things. I want to challenge you. Whatever it is that God has given you, don't make paying the bills your first priority. Pastor, I got I to be responsible. I got a family I got to take care of. I, I'm not disagreeing with you. You need to take care of your family, and that needs to be your responsibility, and you ought to be hardworking. I'm not disregarding work ethic here. You, you should. It is godly to have a great work ethic. It is, God, it is God-honoring and godly to be the hardest-working person wherever you go. I'm convinced of that because I could go, that's a whole other sermon. I'm convinced of that, that that you ought to be the hardest working person at your job, or at least try to be. It ought not to be for lack of trying. I'm not saying don't work hard. I'm not saying don't provide. I'm saying pursue first. First, before pursuing paying the bills. Pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you are in a situation where you're constantly so busy that you don't ever have time for God, something has to change. I'm not telling you what it is. I'm not telling you to quit your job. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm telling you, you and the Lord need to spend some time in the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can test and discern and know the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, and let God guide you in where you need to go. One of the greatest men I ever have been discipled by was in that motorcycle group, and I used to cut grass with him. I told you about him before. He graduated from Louisiana State University with a bachelor's degree in turf management. Do you know you can get a degree in that? You can get a bachelor's degree in turf management. As a matter of fact, he graduated as the number one student 
in the country in turf management. Now, I'm assuming that's a pretty small field because I've never heard of anybody else that got that degree. So maybe he was the only one. I don't know. But I do know that immediately out of college, he was recruited by some of the top golf course designers in the country to help design and maintain golf courses all over the country, some of them here in Florida. I mean, we're talking a guy who takes cutting grass and taking care of a yard to an art. Highly educated, unbelievably impressive knowledge on all that. One day, and he's making great money managing a, a, a big golf course and a university. And, and one day, God tells him, I want you to quit those jobs. And I want you to start a lawn cutting company. And he said to me, he said, I told God, God, I don't just cut lawns. I got a degree in this. I, this, is, I, this is an art. I do this at golf courses, universities. I make beautiful things. And he said, I just want you to trust me. He said, man, he fought with God so hard on that that eventually he, he came to the conclusion that, all right, God, fine. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. You, you got to provide it. I'm not going to advertise. I'm not telling anybody that I'm thinking about making this switch. You got to provide it. Without advertising, without doing anything, within a month, he had enough contracts to replace his job at the university and the golf course. One of the most Holy Spirit... Now, I, I didn't know him then. I knew him years after that. One of the most Holy Spirit-guided men I've ever met in my life. Shaped me more than any professor or pastor I've ever sat under. Love God with all your strength. Ultimately, this all boils down to loving God with your identity. This is kind of what this is saying. Love God with your identity. Now, and here, here's why I need you to get this word, identity. There is, a, there is a difference between doing something driven out of identity and out of cost-benefit analysis. I think so many of us serve God out of a cost-benefit analysis. What I mean is we'll weigh out the pros and cons, and, well, if I go this direction, here's the good things and here's the bad things, and, and we kind of weigh this out in a cost-benefit analysis. I, I don't think we are to give our lives and our love, especially to God, in a cost-benefits analysis because we all know that love, we all know we're getting there. Love leads to action, right? We can't talk about love as just some sort of uh, ethereal, like, big, emotional, cloudy idea. It does come down to action, but... But we also can't think about love separate, I think, from our identity. See, when it becomes our identity, we will then pursue first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Great book recommended to me by a friend that I finished at the end of this year. Not a Christian book. I do read some that aren't Christian books every once in a while. Um, called Grit. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a psychological study of uh, the relationship between talent, effort, and achievement. Really fascinating book. Uh, data-based study, uh, just incredible application in it uh, about passion and perseverance um, and, and how they, those will end in achievement. And so she studied West Point graduates and studied spelling bee champions and studied uh, scientists and artists and, and, all, and, and mathematicians and all these different kinds of people in different fields and, and kind of came to this conclusion that, that effort means more, grit the way she would word it, that kind of match of passion and perseverance and, and, and strong effort means twice as much as actual talent does. But there was a story towards the end of it about a guy named Tom Darlin. 
I may, I may be pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> Tom graduated from West Point in 1989, spent five years initially in the Army, and made his way up to an Airborne Ranger in the Berlin Brigade. He then, out of the Army, was a two-time CEO, and then in 2005, he was called back to active duty, only to be shot by a sniper in 2006. The bullet from that sniper shattered his pelvis and the base of his spine. The doctors told him that he would never again. His answer to the doctors was, you don't know me. See, before he got shot, he was already planning and training to run in the Army 10-miler. And so he said, I will run in the Army 10-miler again. Now, the author of this book tells this story to, to give this point. And I want to give the same point to you. She tells the rest of the story to give the point that what Tom does from this point forward cannot be based off of cost-benefit analysis. It was based solely off of an identity as a West Point graduate airborne ranger, two-time CEO. This is who he knew himself to be. He said, this is, this is who I am. And so he did the physical therapy and he pushed harder than everybody else. He would push harder than the physical therapist would tell him to. And they said that he would grunt obnoxiously and loudly and everybody thought it was so weird and would start to make fun of him. And eventually they started to cheer him on. And then after about eight to 10 months, he got to the point the physical therapist wanted him to where on, on a treadmill while holding onto the side, he could jog a little bit. And they said he had never walked. This was a miracle. This was huge that he could even jog on a treadmill. And they said, you're done. And he said, no, I'm not done. He continued to come back to the physical therapy place. He couldn't meet with the physical therapist anymore because insurance wouldn't pay for it because technically he was rehabilitated. But he wanted to come back and use the same equipment. And so he came in there for another eight to ten months and continued to train until he was able to run the Army 10-miler. Not because of a cost-benefit analysis. In the long run, was there some great benefit to running an Army 10-mile? Sure, it felt great. It was, a, it was an accomplishment. But, I mean, you, if you weigh out the cost that it cost him, it does, a, a completion trophy is not adequate for the amount of effort he put in. Here's what I want you to see. He didn't do it because of a cost-benefit analysis. He did it because of his identity. He said... I simply wasn't going to fail because I didn't care or didn't try. And then listen, he said, that's not who I am. This is not a a Christian story, but here's what I want you to get. When you love God with all your identity, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, everything you do, when you love God, with everything about you, when it's your identity, when you realize how do I define myself, not just, not just verbally how do I define myself, but how do I see myself, how do I define myself as a child of God, as loved by God, as a lover of God, as a follower of God, then all of a sudden you'll quit doing cost-benefit analysis on how much you're going to give God of your life. You'll just realize this is who I am. This is who I am. I'm going to give everything to him because it's who I am. This is where we've got to get to. We've got to get to the point that it becomes our identity. When it becomes our identity, I'll be honest, that's not easy. For it to become our identity, we have to kill a lot of idols. 
the biggest obstacle to that being our identity is our idolatry. We have a tendency to love the things that God gives rather than God. And it'll never be our identity when we do that. We have a tendency to love ourselves more than we do God, and it'll never become our identity when we do that. I I would love to tell you, like Paul tells his readers, follow me. Follow my example. I'd love to tell you that. I'd love to be able to stand here and say, hey, watch my life and follow my life and the way that I do this. But I want to be honest with you. I struggle with this. I don't do this. Every, not every day is this my identity. And this is, this is my desire, 2018. I'm chasing this more than anything. Listen to me. I'm chasing this more than attendance. I'm chasing this more than giving. I'm chasing this more than accolades. I'm chasing this more than paying bills. I, I've decided coming into 2018, I'm chasing this. When I read that book, Grit, I kept thinking, I want to be so gritty about chasing God in my life that it becomes my ultimate pursuit always and forever. Because if I'll pursue that first, I know it to be true. I know it because God said it. If I'll pursue that first, He'll take care of the rest. Can we be bold enough to believe that today? Can we be bold enough as a church? Can we be bold enough individually to own that truth and chase it and let it be our preference and set aside literally everything else? Because I'm going to tell you, God can't be your everything if you're clinging on to a whole lot of other stuff. God can't be your everything if he's just a supplemental addition to what you've got going on. God can only be your everything when you let go of everything. And I mean everything. Everything. Love, second point, begins and ends with God. Following Jesus is ultimately about love. It's a love that came looking for us when we weren't looking for it. God is love. God's love is everlasting, meaning it had it's eternal, it had no beginning, and it has no end. And here's what's really great for you about that, right? I, I've got amazing love for my wife. My wife legitimately honestly, is my favorite person on this earth. Without competition. And not just because I chose that, she just is. She just is my favorite person. But that love began one day. It hasn't always been. Right? That love began. It started to grow when I met her. And as I got to know her more, it started to grow more and and really solidify. But it wasn't always there. When I didn't know she existed, I had zero love for her. And I'll be honest, because I'm a human being, a lot of my love for her is based off of how amazing she is. God's love for you is not based on how amazing you were, and it didn't begin when you started getting good. God's love for you began before the foundation of the world when he wrote down your name in the book of life. God's love for you has always been, regardless of your shame, regardless of your shortcomings, regardless of your failures, regardless of how little your love for him is, his love for you is eternal. It always has been and always will be. In other words, you can't ruin it or take it away. 
God's love is steadfast. It's based off of a covenant. It's based off of a covenant written in his blood. God's love is a covenant that he wrote on the cross. The reason he can oversee your shame, the reason he can oversee your sin, overlook it and love you is because of the cross. And you got to get, it has nothing to do with your value. And, and you go, well, pastor, don't make so little of me. No, no, no. You got to catch that this is good news that has nothing to do with your value. Because you don't have to measure up to be loved by God. You don't have to be enough to be loved by God. He just loves you. And that love is possible in a covenant because Jesus said, because God said, my love for you is so great that while you were still a sinner, I would die for you. That God's love is so great for us that he sent his only begotten son, that he would come and live a perfect life on earth and then die brutally, humiliating on a cross, publicly shamed, naked, beaten, beyond recognition in front of everyone, what you deserve because of your sin. Don't miss that. That he took that. Because his love is amazing. Because his love has nothing to do with how good you are, but how amazing his grace is. When you let that be your identity, you'll stop trying to measure up And you'll just love him. You'll just love him. Because to know God, to know God is to know that God is love. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Our our love, our ability to love, listen, our ability to love good food, our ability to love Tacos, our ability to love hamburgers, our ability to love football, our ability to love music or good movies or good books, all comes because God first loved us because he is love. But when we let our love stop at those things, that is idolatry. That's the idolatry we got to get rid of. God gave us these beautiful things so that we could see how amazing he is. Food is by far, Audrey is my favorite person, food is my favorite thing. If I've got Audrey in food, it doesn't get much better. But see, God didn't have to give us good flavors. He didn't have to. He could have he just made food like cardboard sustenance that we just got to eat to get going. But no, God... God loves us so much and he wanted to give you a glimpse of his creativity. Just a glimpse. He wanted to give you a glimpse of how amazing he is. So he created flavors and seasonings and, and different things that can mix together and, and things that we don't even think should mix together. And when, when they do, it's amazing when they do. And it's this unbelievable flavor and texture. And when we in, let our, our pleasure end on that thing rather than the one who created it, Romans chapter 1 says that that's idolatry. And so I'm telling you, enjoy the good food. Enjoy the good music. Enjoy the football game love it but don't let it in there don't let it in there let it be a glimpse of how great and amazing God is we love because he first loved us 1 John 4.19 God is love God's love is his character it's, it's who he is 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe 
the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And I want to tell you, not only, not only do we love because he first loved us and God is love, but here's the deal. To pursue God, to know God, is to love God. To know God is to love God. First John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. A.W. Tozer says, It is a well-known law of the spiritual life that our love for God will spring up and flourish just as our knowledge of Him increases. To know Him is to love Him, and to know Him better is to love Him better. You can read your Bible every day and learn great facts that never increase your affection. But you, but you won't get very far in your affection without reading his word. You won't. If all you do is listen to me preach it, maybe you listen to preaching on TV and the radio or something like that, it, listen, that will increase your affection for the Lord. Find a way to spend time in the word of God. Well, I don't read very well. You know what? I don't read very well. I start off almost every single morning with an audio Bible. Because I, I want to listen. I want to meditate on God's word. I then go read it too. God, God wrote you a love letter. It's his living word. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Abide in his love. Abide in his word. Dwell in him. Dwell in his word. Get to know God more. And look, don't study it for facts. Study it for God. Listen to the words of the songs that we sing. I love listening to the words of songs and hearing unbelievable truths about God come out. I mean, honestly, that's when I worship more than a beat, more than a rhythm or a style. It's the truths of my God. And I, I even love to say that possessively because I get to. Because he's my God. He's not just the God, some some distant creator that holds the world in his hands. He is that. He is the creator who holds the world and the universe in his hands, but he is, he's my God. Like, me and him, we hang out sometimes. Not as often as we should, but we do. We hang out. And man, it's awesome. My God, my God's amazing. And the truths about him are unbelievable. And they're better than anything else I've ever found. Towards the end of the book of John, one of my favorite stories, because it shows there's hope for a screw-up like me. Peter is messed up, right? I'm not going to read it to you, but Peter's messed up. He's denied Christ three times. So Jesus comes to the beach in a resurrected body, and he calls Peter over. And he says, Peter, and he asks him this question. Do you love me? more than these? Now, there's a lot of debate over what he's talking about there. No matter which direction you go, here's what I think. Either Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these friends and this fish and, and the way you get to do life as a fisherman? I think what he's saying, because the way Peter has acted, the way Peter has spoken to him in the past, I think he's saying, do you love me more than these guys do? 
But I think when we look at both applications of that, I think you've got to ask yourself, think of, I want you to think of the idols that you pursue rather than God. Do you love Him more than these? Do you love Him more than those things? And what you've got to understand, idols aren't always bad things. Oftentimes, they're not. We talked in our Bible study group, idols often are our wives, our spouses, our children, our jobs. I, I love Audrey a lot, and sometimes, honestly, I love her more than God. Sometimes I love my kids more than God. Do you, do you love him more than these? Do you realize the best way I can serve my wife, the best way I can serve my children, is to love God more than them? Best way to be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good parent, be a good child, be a good employee, be a good employer, is to love God more than those things. Best way to be good at your work is to love God more than your work. It's the way God designed it. Do you love Him more than these? Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You need to understand something that love always leads to obedience. Love always, always, everybody say always, leads to obedience. When you find yourself not obedient to the commands of God in your life, you can be sure the root of that problem is your love has been misplaced. That's it. Always. That's always the problem. When we choose to not follow in obedience what God has called us to do, it's because we love other things or ourselves more than we do God. Love always leads to obedience. If we love God, we will obey Him. But don't get it twisted. Obedience does not always lead to love. And we love to get it the other way around, don't we? We, we just think, if I'll just behave right, then God will love me. This is why you've got to catch that God's love is eternal. God's love is steadfast. God's love is everlasting. And it is not contingent upon your obedience, but your obedience is contingent upon your love because to obey outside of love is not to obey. Do you get that? That when you obey without love, it's not even really obedience? It's just self-serving. To love God is to obey God. To obey Him is not necessarily always to love Him. Sometimes we just obey because we think that's what we're supposed to do. Now listen, don't use that. Do not. Do not use that as an excuse. Well, you know, I'm not really loving God, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. Because I don't want to, you know, just follow the rules because that's what I'm supposed to do. Yes, follow the rules because it's what you're supposed to do. Because obedience very well can be the path to love if it's in pursuit of it. 
If it's in pursuit of approval, it'll be about you. But if you obey in pursuit of love, you'll find love and then obedience will come easier. And not only will it come easier, it'll come with joy. So maybe for you, you don't know the will of God in your life, but right now you just need to do what you know you're supposed to do. But not just to do what you're supposed to do. Do it in a pursuit of Him. Do it pursuing love. If you pursue love, you'll find it. If you pursue self, you'll find it. What are you pursuing? What do you love? I'm going to pray and we're going to have an opportunity to respond. And here's what I want to do. Starting the year off. This is a new year. So if, if you want to know what it is to be a child of God, I would love nothing more than to talk to you. Come down and talk to me. I'll be down here. If you're already a child of God, listen. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about what is it that I, I pursue rather than God. I really want to encourage you to do something about it. Let's be bold. Find somebody in the pews. And y'all, during this song, if you need to, don't sing. Just pray with somebody. Come down and, 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 and at the steps and, and, and figuratively, like, actually lay down. Lay down whatever it is that you keep grasping and trying to cling to rather than loving God. And ask God to increase your love for Him this year. There is no greater pursuit, no greater pleasure than that that you can chase after. So make, make your resolution now, and, but you can't, you can't reach out for God without letting go of your idols. So either I want you to let go of your idols by finding somebody and confessing to them and praying with them or coming and praying with me or coming and laying it down right here and let us see you. Come with somebody and pray together. Let's, listen, let's not just stand here and recite some words and then go watch a football game. Let's, let's get bold this year. And listen, if, if you're doing great, here's what I need. I need from you. And I, I mean this, I need this, church. I need you to pray for this church. I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray that God would do mighty things in this church. And listen, I'm not not talking about numbers. I legitimately have gotten past the point of caring how many people are here. I want to see us love God deeply and bring others to that love. I want to see that love break addictions and and reunite marriages and reconcile relationships. I want to see that love make a massive difference in who you are. I want to see you own that love as an identity. If, if, If our numbers never grow, but we see that happen, I'm good. I'd love to see us grow. I'm not saying I don't want to see us grow. I'm not asking you to pray for numerical growth. I'm asking you to pray that we would love God with all our identity. That this Wednesday when we start steps class, we would see the beginning of addictions broken. When we start the Spanish class, we would see lost Hispanic people or Hispanic people who don't have a church home find somewhere where they can increase their love of God together. When we get in our Wednesday night class that I'm teaching on on discipleship for the first couple of weeks, that we would would really make a plan on how to grow in our faith. That the youth group would, would grow in their faith. That the kids would grow in their love. 
Let that be our pursuit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would fall in love with you and not your gifts. We would pursue you. Lord, that you would become our greatest pleasure. Lord, I think that your love is not passive, but that you call us to repentance. Lord, I pray that this morning we would lay down our idols. Lord, that men would resolve to lead their homes in such a way that it increases their affection for you. Lord, that we would use our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength to love you. Not just your gifts, not just your blessings, but even when things aren't good, that we would just love you. Lord, this church would just love you more than anything else. Lord, that we would find people who don't know your love and we would share your love with them. Lord, that we would see your love break addictions and strengthen marriages. Lord, we would see your love change eternity for people. Lord, we'd see prodigals return home. This would be a year where we see people lay down their idols and pursue loving you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray together.